Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd and I'm here today with Nick. Hey there. And Percy. Hello. And this week we have a special guest, James D'Amato of the One Shot Podcast and the author of the Ultimate RPG Gameplay Guide, the Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide, the Ultimate Micro RPG Book, and most recently the Ultimate RPG Game Master's World Building Guide. Hello, heroes. Uh, I, I want to thank you for that lovely introduction and also point out that I was only the author of one of the games uh, and the introduction to the micro RPG book. That is an anthology and mm. there are 39 uh, truly wonderful contributors that uh, are also part of that book. Excellent. Um, but James, to start with, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your introduction to tabletop role playing games? Sure thing. I actually got introduced to tabletop role-playing games in college. Uh, when I was going to Allegheny College, there was uh, this wonderful club on campus uh, called uh, Argo. I think it was like the Allegheny role-playing game organization maybe um but uh they were doing these introduction to dungeons and dragons games and i had absolutely no interest in it and i walked right by that that club table however like a couple weeks into the first semester uh there was somebody that i i very much wanted to meet and get to know better and one of my friends uh had signed up for the introduction to DD game and uh that person that i wanted to get to know had also signed up for that game so i did ask my friend very much to drop out of that game so i could get in and get to know this person so <laughs> i am the quintessential fake nerd i am really just in it to meet people and get attention um and i am systematically destroying this hobby <laughs> excellent we love that i think <laughs> i think we all aspire to do that in our own way um destroy the hobby yeah <laughs> take it away from the old grognards why not exactly <laughs> The, the, the important takeaway is that this is a hobby for handsome queers. It's not a hobby for for mean old people. Uh, that's for sure. For sure. For sure. Uh, wonderful. We were also wondering, uh, because, because we're a podcast about the intersection of theater and tabletop games, and I know that you have a background in improv and theater. You've trained at Second City and IO, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. So we were curious if there are ways that you use your improv and theater training in in role playing and particularly thinking about this book, the Game Master's World Building Guide. If there are any ways that you use improv in building a world or a, a kind of collaborative story together. Absolutely. I mean, th this is an interesting question. I am somebody who I, I think I can say a lot of these things more freely now because many of the theaters that I, I trained at uh, for improv uh, no longer exist post pandemic. <laughs> uh, and that is that role playing games are actually extremely sophisticated improv forms. Uh, I consider improv and role playing to be no different from one another. If there is a difference in the techniques that were taught at places like I.O. Or, or Second City, it is that you are learning how to create in those spaces with the idea that whatever you create is going to be presented to an audience. Um, you know, improv is fun and no matter how we do it. Now, like I, I think theater and acting and, and performance is fun generally. Um, but role playing is something that ostensibly, you know, we're, we're just there to do for our 
ourselves. We are there to enjoy it. Uh, we aren't in most circumstances thinking about, well, if somebody were to observe this story, what would their experience of it be? Um, so like that might be the difference, but at the end of the day, you know, you immerse yourself in a character, uh, you share an imaginary space with a group of people and together you build on each other's ideas and that results in a story experience, which is, you know, fun and, and rewarding in its own right. Um, and improv, you know, functions on a similar mechanism. Uh, one of the buzzwords that, that gets thrown around for improv is, is yes and, the idea that uh, you accept the reality that is proposed by your scene partners and you build upon that reality. I, I point out in the gameplay guide that, that that's kind of like a slightly misunderstood concept. A lot of people use that to presuppose that like you are supposed to agree to every single idea that is put in front of you and that you have no agency or will to uh, reject ideas, which I don't think is a particularly safe way to to do improv or role-playing, but the idea that ideas that are put in front of you are real. Like if somebody tells your character, Hey, drink this big, uh, glass of poison, you should not go, yes, I'll drink a glass of poison. You, you should go, yes, you've handed me a glass of poison, but no, I will decline in drinking it. So uh, all, all that is to say the, the fundamental mechanisms that make both of these things work are the same. Uh, and so in what I do with uh, actual play is I am I'm combining both of those ideas. I am using the sophisticated and mechanics-driven improv forms that are role-playing games as performance pieces. And most of the people who are on one shot and certainly the people who are on campaign are folks who are trained to create improvisationally with an audience in mind. Um, so, you know, if there is a difference between our program and a program uh, with people who don't have that experience in, in, in improv or, or theater, it is that we, when we make our choices and we, we have trained ourselves reflexively when we make our choices to make those choices be interesting to observe uh, and also like try to embody our characters in a way that is interesting to observe uh, in a way that you might not if you are doing role play, you know, specifically for the joy of role play. Uh, I, I think there are plenty of private groups that are would, would be extremely wonderful to watch and, and entertaining to observe. Uh, but that's not always the case. And that's because, you know, it's it's for them. It's, it's a private thing. Um, and certainly the way we do it is just one way to approach it. But it is my favorite way. And I don't think I really could do it another way because I have all of this experience in improv and theater. And those are things that I truly love. So that is a style that I want to showcase uh, and show people like, you know, this is one of the ways that you can enjoy this hobby. Uh, one of my favorite parts of uh, of the Game Master's World Building Guide, because I find that like, like I, th I think TTRPG, the TTRPG community is really bad at like defining what they mean when they use words like game or player. So I really love the section where you sort of operationally define this is what I mean when I say certain terms. And I'm always interested in how people specifically define what a role playing game is. So I'm curious, um, you define it as uh, a type of game in which players generate stories through shared imagination. And I'm curious about how you maybe arrived at that definition. 
Yeah, it, that so that was a, a tough one and like a journey I think that was like several books long because I had originally I think it, there's a definition in the character backstory guide as well the first book that I published and I was not planning on including a definition of role playing uh, or, you know, even GM or PC or any related terms in those books, uh, because the, one of the things that I kind of resent that we feel is necessary in the role playing hobby is m so many role playing games open with a sort of apologetic explanation for the activity that you're about to do. Uh, and, you know, this is a thing that we do in role-playing games, but we never think to do in like board games. We don't go, a board game is where you use cardboard pieces and plastic pieces to tell the story of winning the most points and how bankrupt the capitalistic uh, system of real estate is in the United States. Like, no, we don't do that uh, because like that's a buck wild thing to do. But role playing games, you know, we, we have this real chip on our shoulder of like, well, nobody understands what it is we do. Um, and my publisher did eventually bully me and like, hey, you know, we want this to be a, a general use product. We want this to be something that somebody can pick up even if they don't play role-playing games or have never played a role-playing game before, one of uh, when I was talking with my editor, one of the audiences that we kind of identified was, you know, there is a big group of people who watch Critical Role who have never played D&D. And like, that is a group of people that I am like kind of invested in. Like, well, I kind of want to get you at the table playing your own stories. Like it's, it's so wonderful that, that you get, get to watch, uh, that this group of talented voice actors and, and performers, uh, play their game, but like your favorite game should be your own game. Um, and so we, like with that in mind, it's like, okay, we should include these definitional terms because if there is a chance that this book could be a bridge to somebody sitting down and playing their first game for the first time, you know, we, we, we have to embrace that. So I, I was trying to, I was given very strict word count like uh, requirements for what I was allowed to define about what a role-playing game is, about what a game master is and what, what a PC is. Um, so for uh, like role-playing game, I was really trying to distill it like, what is the thing that makes this special? Uh, why is this different than like, you know, the war games that this was born out of, or even the role-playing games that people play when they are, uh, you know, playing RPGs on the computer. And I, I really think the thing that is special that, that, that makes these games different is that shared imaginary space. Now, there are also solo RPGs, so like that kind of gets a little hairy, but but certainly a lot of what I'm talking about in this is I'm talking about a game with one or more players and the thing that is making it work and the thing that is making it special is you are both agreeing on a fictional scenario in that case. And the game mechanics are there to help you shape that fictional scenario. So, so that's kind of where I, I, I got at. So like that, that, that's why the definition is that way. And moving on to like 
creating a definition for GM versus PC, I find there are a lot of games where uh, they will refer to the the GM or the DM, the, the person running the game, you know, by that title, and they will refer to everybody else involved in the game as the players, which is buck wild because the GM is absolutely still playing the game. Their role might be different and they might have slightly different responsibilities, but they're playing like we like to pretend sometimes that it is a slog or work uh, to be a GM. And for some people it is because that's not the role that they enjoy most. But for me, I, I prefer it. Uh, uh, I always get a little antsy when I'm not in the GM spot uh, because I, I like some of the definitional freedom that you get from that role. So I, I wanted to assert that, Everybody involved in the game is a player and there is a differential between roles where you have somebody who sometimes represents not just a character, but a whole cast of characters and forces in the world outside of character and everyone else is representing an individual character and sort of playing that character off of those external forces. That does feel like an important uh, separation and definition. So I, I, I distilled it down to like, you've got the game master and you've got the player characters. Um, and, you know, we kind of used for the individual who is playing the character and the character itself, like PC was a uh, interchangeable term um, in that way to like sort of settle people into the idea that this character is you, you are this character. When we're putting these scenarios and what whatnot in, in front of you, we're, we're putting them in front of you both uh, in, in a way. So that, that's kind of what we were driving out. We wanted to make... Uh, uh, the book accessible and I wanted to let everyone feel like no matter what your role is in the game, you are still playing the game and still give people the impression that there are different expectations based on the role you are taking into your game. I love that because I feel like there's this like dominant narrative of like beleaguered GM and like players who are deliberately antagonizing their beleaguered GM and like I that's not fun at all why would you why would yeah. you do that like I, I you know I I can understand from a certain like satirical perspective because like we've all had games that were less than great and it can definitely feel like if you're in the GM role that sometimes how like this group must be antagonizing me because they walk <laughs> away from the plot that I am setting up at every turn like how how could that be anything but intentional? But, you know, th like at the end of the day, we don't want to make that feeling the default experience for the hobby, because if that were the case, why would anybody do this? <laughs> like, unless you really love herding cats or, you know, ha like sometimes that chaos is nice and is fun. But like that is not really my experience when I think about role playing and I want people to kind of go in with the idea that oh, this is a fun thing this is a fun thing where we work together even if our roles are different even if our expectations are different we are all working towards this together which is one of the reasons that the gameplay guide itself was not specifically aimed at the game master that is something that my publisher kind of wanted to happen for a little bit and I, I pushed back again 
against that. And it was like, no, because like the techniques and, and, and skills and whatnot involved in gameplay are shared between those roles. Like there is artistry in, in being a player and you can approach being a player with that intentionally collaborative uh, and build upon what I am giving you perspective uh, that would also be helpful to the game master. So I, I wanted those ideas brought together and lower some of those separations while still giving people the tools they need to understand those structures. Yeah, I love that because I feel like I feel like you've named a dynamic that I have never had words for, which is that like a lot of TTRPGs preemptively uh, decide that they have to justify their existence. And it's just yes. like, no, like this is a game for fun. And like, let's set up the conditions for people to have fun playing a game. And that like, yeah, being a game is is enough. It, it is really wild. And I think it comes from the industry has not seen itself through a professional lens for much of its history, which means that the tone of rules explanations in a lot of cases has been more casual, but also more casual in a way that's not really approachable. Like if you are a fan uh, like I am of the System Mastery podcast where they read through old out of print RPGs, um, particularly like a lot of Heartbreakers games that maybe had a lot of investment in them and didn't really go anywhere. The tone of so many of those books is asserting toxic group dynamics dynamics they're kind of funny to think about like they'll talk about how many books talk about bribing uh the gm with pizza uh to to get things that you want out of the game and like yeah that's kind of a funny charming like hobby thing like of oh oh, oh, yes i will bribe my friend to get this thing but also like when you're thinking of it in terms of this is the dynamic that i am presenting to someone who might be playing for the first time that's a weird way to open it i can't imagine Mm -hmm. putting that in one of my books i can't imagine telling people this is the way it is this is the way it ideally works because again i'm putting the rules of the game in front of you so if you follow the rules you should have an ideal play session uh so it's kind of wild uh how common that is uh, or that that was and to see how that has changed and evolved and maybe hopefully you know 10 years down the line we will be able to look you know even at my definitions and go well now this is unnecessary because these games are intuitively understood to to the same degree that something like a board game might be shifting gears a little bit i really enjoyed reading through your fantasy world building section um so many of the questions felt like obvious but also the answers they provoked felt very revelatory like of course you should wonder like where is your magic coming from and like how common or not common is it but i feel like so many of these games just don't often well I mean, that's uh, it's an interesting thing because a lot of the time I I think game books are assuming that you are going to be using their setting or Mm -hmm. that if you're going to use your own setting, that you're just going to make it up on your own. A lot of the pushback that I get against some of my books is like, well, I can make up my own character backstory or I can make up my own world. And (laughs) the answer is like, yeah, of course Mm -hmm. you can. You can also sit down with your friends and just tell a story together in a completely unstructured environment, but you use the game because it's fun. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I was trying to do with those questions is there are a lot of like, at least for character backstory, at least like there are a lot of books that are just full of random tables of like, you know, random elements to put in your game, because to a lot of people, that's what a RPG is bringing to the table is an element of randomness, uh, to be a basis for you to springboard your ideas off of. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's fine. But I, I have come to love RPGs that provide a really cool, open-ended and, and thought-provoking, incisive question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about a game like For the Queen, which is all just really great open-ended questions. That's how the entire game works. And so what I wanted to do with, with some of the questions and prompts in this book is channel people's thinking in a specific direction and give them a question that there could be 10,000 answers for um, mm-hmm. so that you can make an unlimited number of like settings through this book, uh, but it is easy every time because you're answering a specific question. There's no choice paralysis. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, in world building, you can literally do anything. Uh, you can decide there's never been gravity ever. You can not have <laughs> humans even be a, a beginning concern in the world. You could be playing paramecium's for goodness sake. Uh, so that means that like that that unlimited power actually makes it harder to create in certain circumstances. And I really wanted to ground people and provide them enough structure that allowed them to unlock that limitless potential of their imagination in the same way that I think role-playing games do through their mechanics. That made me think of a different question, which is that I have encountered a lot of games recently that use questions in the similar way, but they're about character relationships as a springboard. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that as a as a way of sort of entering the world or creating a springboard that you can tell a story off of. I, I think it's truly great. I mean, I, I think about uh, Powered by the Apocalypse systems and uh, the Bonds subsystem uh, that shows up in a lot of different Powered by the Apocalypse games where they are essentially like a fill in the blank character relationship list, like uh, blank is weak. So I will make them strong uh, sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, which provides like a very easy story. And there are 10,000 ways to to play out that story. Um, and you can always ignore those bonds if, if you don't you know, want to deal with them. But it is really cool to just give people something. Um, if you give someone something to start with, it will be easy for them to create the next thing uh, that, that comes after that. Um, so I love any question that helps people define something about their characters. And, you know, going back to improv a little bit, one of the big uh, things that that we, we talk about when you are starting a scene, especially for long form improv, the thing that you want to get to as quickly as possible in your scene, if you can, is establish the relationship. Mm-hmm. You want to know where these characters are, who they are. Um, But most importantly, who are they to each other? Because 
all of the fun that you're going to have in your scene is probably going to be built upon that. Um, and you can be a brilliant creative genius who just pulls like funny and compelling ideas out of nowhere. Like, you know, we, we've seen Robin Williams do his thing for sure, but like, that's a wild amount of pressure to put on yourself and, you know, not a great thing to do. Uh, uh, for performance. So instead, if you can create a character relationship that uh, your audience can relate to, they will always have that foundation. And then kind of anything that you do on top of that will be relatable and easy for them to discover alongside you. Yeah. And actually, I think another sort of link between those two things is I feel like those relationship questions make endowment a thing that is okay in the context of the game in terms of like saying this is true about your character from my character's perspective and not feeling like shy or weird about saying like this is a thing that I'm offering to you and you can decide right to what extent you will accept it because I feel like a lot of I see a lot of paralysis in terms of like I don't want to make decisions for anybody else but at the same time yeah there is a I I really struggle with this um because you know I I have certainly been criticized as a game master uh because people feel that I am overruling player agency in in certain situations when I give my players particularly on skyjacks like a hey this is a fact this is you know you have seen this person from your uh, past and this is a feeling that, that that you are having that that sort of gift is something that is extremely common in improv like it is really easy to start an improv scene and go whoa whoa why are you so angry right now because that helps your co-performer go oh great i just need to be angry to to be honest to the scene that that's all i need or i need to be underwhelmingly monotone and this person is just going to react like i'm popping off or what have you so much fun that you can have regardless like that is actually a, a fun and useful gift and giving the space to allow people to give those gifts to each other's characters, I think is actually really great encouragement. Uh, what I really don't like to see and don't have much fun with are situations where people never think about each other's characters. They're just bringing their characters to the table and bouncing their characters off the scenario. And it's like, this is supposed to be a group of traveling adventurers and they don't care about each other. They don't playfully tease one another. They, they don't you know, have crushes on each other. What is this? <laughs> this isn't, this isn't any close friend group that I've ever observed in my life. Um, so I, I, I find it really compelling, uh, when a game or, you know, a, an accessory structure to a game gives people reason to invest in each other's characters and each other's ideas. Uh, what, one of the things that, that I call out in the world building guide specifically is that all world building is collaborative. Um, even if you as the game master are creating your world, uh, you are collaborating kind of with yourself, but you're also collaborating with your influences. You're collaborating with your intentions. You are taking foundational ideas and building on top of them. Yeah. Uh, so so the, the, the spirit of that collaboration is something that you want to keep in mind. And one of the reasons that the book exists as an object is to be a collaborator to you, um, because collaborators, I think, make things easier 
And uh, also, in my selfish opinion, I, I think they make things better. Um, I think that the stories that I tell through my role playing games are generally better than they would have been if I decided to start drafting them alone. Now, I could always take those stories as a framework as a writer and like, you know, tighten up like dialogue or whatnot. But generally speaking, working with other people, I, I think, does lead to a better product, especially if your process and outlook for all of that is good. I was just going to say, I think there is such a kind of stereotype or that may not even be the right word, but an inheritance from the like fantasy novel tradition where GMs who are building their own world think that they have to be like Tolkien or like Patrick Rothfuss, who actually wrote the introduction to this book or something <laughs> like they have the this image of like the writer toiling away at the building of the world. And one of the things I love about the book is that it uh it, it works to provide a sense of play and of like creativity and discovery rather than just of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we really did want to emphasize that. Like, I, I think that connection gets drawn a lot because the driving force for a lot of especially early role playing games is a kind of power fantasy. And the idea that you are Tolkien forging Middle Earth uh, uh, by by your the sharpness of your mind and and the fact that you're not dealing with a lot of homoerotic feelings like that feels like a very appealing power fantasy to people. Right. Like uh, so I, I think there is a continual hearkening back that like when you are GM, your word is law and you are a type of God and you forge your own world. But that does make the role seem lonely and like kind mm -hmm. of a hassle. Um, and I definitely want in all of my books for people to feel that there is a sense of play always because that is what makes a lot of the stuff in this approachable to me. Like if somebody said, hey, do you want to, you know, do a bunch of production work um, and, you know, work, uh, work in a writer's room for almost no money for like five <laughs> years before you see anything? I would go, are you mad? That is a wild thing to propose to me. But if they're like, hey, do you want to run an actual play podcast uh, and eventually maybe uh, make money on it? It's like, oh, yeah, sure that's great because I'm playing because I'm playing and it's fun mm -hmm. to do. Harkening back a little bit to, to your discussion of like the book as a collaborator with GMs, um, Percy and Nick, I'm not sure if you felt this way too, but in many ways, the, the questions, the like thought provoking questions that all of these exercises are designed to give, um, felt very much like the way a dramaturg works with a playwright. Um, as a play is being written, like bouncing these like, oh, like, how does this work in this? Or like, how how do you think about this thing? And hearing you think about this book as a collaborator to me as a dramaturg, who is that sort of like question asking collaborator feels very like validating and cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I am so glad to hear that because I uh, my experience in theater, um, I did take theater classes in college, but I only took acting classes and I refused to take any theater history classes or, or structural classes because I found them intensely boring. And all I wanted to do was the act of performing. And if I had to learn a lot of about a lot of old white men like that wasn't really gonna cut it for me um so i th that means 
I miss out on a lot of the structure of, of how theater works sometimes. And it is extremely cool uh, to hear that that's how the dramaturg process uh, works and all that. Because I the, the only experience I have with, with dramaturgs is past the playwright stage when it is a dramaturg director relationship uh, trying to explain, well, these are the references that, that, that mm-hmm. we're getting in this. And this is the structure of this joke. And these are the notes that we want to hit and whatnot, uh, which I think is also intensely interesting uh but it is really cool to know that that is part of the drafting process as well yeah sort of like the thesis of our of our podcast is essentially that role-playing games are a shared dramaturgy among all of the people playing them and that everybody that makes is a lot of, of sense yeah, yeah that, occupying that, that role that ab- that absolutely tracks uh i really like that and and you know the the relationship between the core thing that allows role playing games to work which i you know in my opinion is collaboration uh is definitely a part of theater like theater is all like everyone involved in the production is a part of the show and why the show works like you can't have the show if nobody's opening the curtains for it so like uh it is all this big organism machine that functions together uh in a very complicated way to to make this uh art that you know is also kind of very simple and very human uh, shifting gears a little bit, is there a particular genre from the book that you favor in terms of games that you like to play or games that you like to watch other people play or participate in? Um, and are there sort of particular like influences that you find yourself borrowing or stealing or drawing from particularly frequently? Um, that That is an interesting question. I mean, on one shot, because we try out so many different role playing games there, I hop between genres all the time. Uh, so it, it's hard for me to look at any of the genres that I included in the book and, and call them a favorite. And there's also like there are plenty of genres that didn't make it into the book uh, because I was trying to distill the genre selection to the most popular genres so that this book could be as useful as possible to as many people as possible. I, I will say of of the sections uh, that, that I really like in the book, one of the first exercises that I wrote was enforcers from the punk section of the book. And that is like one of the things that I'm proudest of uh, because punk, I think particularly in role-playing games uh, and like general nerd media is not understood uh, thematically uh, or supported thematically. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we, we understand cyberpunk to a certain extent, but it is very easy to get lost in like neon and cool jackets and sometimes guns and robots. Um, and like steampunk, I think especially is dealt kind of a harsh blow in, in this and in that like, it's very easy to get invested in gears and gadgets and Victorian clothing and not think about punk being the other part of it, where you need to have this uh, dynamic of there being an oppressing force, there being an oppressed body and there being punks that are, are actively resisting or acting counter to that oppression. Um, and so the exercises, particularly, I think, in enforcers, I, I think, uh, channels you to understand kind of the underlying structure of that genre. And if you use those exercises to create your punk universe, I think at the end of the day, you will have stronger punk stories because foundationally your world will be tied to those themes and that dynamic, which 
I, I don't think a lot of the punk games do. Like if we look at Shadowrun, um, Shadowrun is a perfect example. There are so many uh, holier than thou hipsters out there who will assert that Shadowrun is not a punk thing because you are playing mercenaries who work for a corporation in a dystopian future. Every single Shadowrun game that I have played has moved in a punk direction because people, when confronted with circumstances like that, will act in their own self-interest, which is usually counter to their employers because they kind of have the freedom of violence and the freedom of, of acting counter to rules. So like Shadowrun itself, nothing about how the game presents itself to you tells you to be a punk. You discover that on your own, which is why I think it is cyberpunk. However, if there was some, and that is because I think the Shadowrun universe is very much built on that punk dynamic on that you have these mega corporations they're doing horribly evil stuff society is bad for everyone and you are somebody who is like a literal murderer for hire because that's what you have to do to to survive within this world like i think that pe pushes people in the punk direction but there are certainly ways that you could mechanically uh support that dynamic as well uh that that might make the punk stronger which is why some of the newer cyberpunk games especially the ones like based in blades in the dark and powered by the apocalypse i think do a better job of channeling players uh, towards that dynamic which is why i think some people are, are more comfortable identifying that as as strong cyberpunk which is to say at, at the end of the day what i was trying to do with the punk section and the reason the punk section like is important to me and stands out is i really think it will help people who want to play with punk settings and get all of like the cool stylistic feelings that they get out of punk fiction uh, while still having really substantive things that they say through the stories that they tell in their universes. Mm -hmm. I also just while we're on this topic, I want to shout out that I loved the union building exercises in the sci-fi section. I thought that was excellent <laughs> i i had to fight for that one a little bit uh, uh to justify to the publisher like well why are we doing this and I'm like because nobody talks about unions <laughs> they they should have a presence in on our forward future thinking thing especially because they are an entity that is not a government or a corporation uh and it kind of reaches a point like i mean you could look at george lucas's work it's like they're in the in Star Wars, there are only governments, corporations, and religions, and that's it. And it's like, well, it's pretty friggin' wild thing to happen in a world that is like literally ten thousand full worlds. Uh, but yeah, like I, I wanted to uh, make sure that people had the option of like creating universes that felt a little bit more fleshed out and dynamic because like some of the directions that I'm trying to channel people towards are things that maybe they wouldn't immediately think of uh, by themselves. And that, that is what I think a good collaborator does is kind of looks in directions and, and, and moves you in directions that, you know, you probably wouldn't on your own. Um, heading back to like, uh, larger world building questions as a GM, um, are there specific places that you tend to start uh, when you're building a new world, like, are there are there things that you're like, oh, I always start with this or 
No, uh, I, I <laughs> like the, each, I think thing is its own individual project and, and needs to be supported in specific ways. Um, with Skyjacks, for instance, uh, the built, the beginning building blocks that I had is Johnny and JPC came to me because we knew that Star Wars campaign was going to be ending soon and they still wanted to have work at the end of the day. So they're like, yeah, we got to we got to figure out our new show. And they came to me and they're like, we've got an idea. Sky Pirates. And that was the whole idea, which is a really cool like building block uh, to, to begin with. So kind of the work that I had to do, like taking that and, and building upon that idea is like, OK, what do I find compelling about piracy? What do I find compelling about the sky uh and i you know went down a rabbit hole of like thinking of like okay you know what do i associate with piracy well unfortunately it is the pirates of the caribbean movies and because i was into them in high school i feel embarrassed by them now so that's a non-starter what do i do (laughs) um the the other answer that came out of that was oh the music of the decemberists makes me think of sad sailors all the time um so i decided to make that a cornerstone of the universe and like okay if i'm using the music of the decemberists as an inspiration what i need to do is go through their discography and pull out characters and themes and dynamics and figure out a way to tie that tone into a world and you know what i discovered is like obviously a lot of what they're drawing from is classic folklore and uh what i want is to kind of pull international folklore that fits the general kind of melancholy tone of decemberist music and use that as a foundational backdrop to the world then because the other thing that I, you do associate with pirates is classic adventure fiction because piracy invented adventure fiction with Treasure Island. So I, I wanted to be like, well, yeah, there's still a role playing game at the end of the day. Even if the world is like thoughtful and soulful and melancholic, we need people to have sword fights uh, because that is going to happen at a role playing table and we need the universe to support that. Um, so. Like, I, I, I guess part of the process is looking for themes and looking for compelling images. But really, you can start anywhere with anything um, when world building. Uh, and OK, I will take back everything that I've said. And I'll say the best place to start is to find out what is your group interested in and try to put as much of what they are interested in as possible and work with them when building it because you want them to be as invested in your world as you are. And if they're not, it's not going to be as fun because it will feel like, well, they're not making the right decisions. They're not playing the right way. And it's like, well, but that's because the world that you built wasn't accounting for the decisions that they wanted to make. Um, Mm -hmm. So like starting from that perspective of where are we finding interest and how do we build interest into what we're doing? I think you can't really go wrong there. I had, this is kind of a follow-up question to what you were about to, what you were just saying, but I had kind of a similar question about scale, which is when you specifically are world building, how, how far, I guess, <laughs> do you build, if that makes sense? Or like, I'm just curious because I, I feel like, you know, we see, especially 
from like the professional tabletop industry you sometimes see these like absolutely massive tomes of like lore we're just wrapping up on our podcast of blades in the dark campaign which you know that game has a whole third of the book that's just the details of the city and the culture and all that stuff um but all, of course that is hard for most players to like keep track of and stay invested in so how how far do you go when you're making original work i mean this is a great question uh i i think what you want is to give people compelling hooks uh or or compelling platforms for them to build their own ideas on um and the what you will need to do in order to do that is probably going to be interest, different for each group and different for each player. Um, one of the reasons that the world building guide is structured in the way that it is, is there are different exercises uh, that at the end of the day, they are just providing you a specific kind of foundation. Like, uh, you know, there's a, in the sci-fi exercises, there's a sci-fi exercise for defining how faster than light travel works in your universe. There is an exercise uh, that's actually a mini game called Time to Face the Strange, where you take different pieces of technology and define how those technologies have altered society. One is kind of like big picture, you know, faster than light travel really only tells you one thing, but from that platform, you can go like, okay, well, if moving faster than light takes weeks and whatnot, like all of our spaceships, you kind of need to be able to live in them. Or maybe there's a stasis between ports or, or, or what have you. Um, it defines kind of the shape of your universe, like the group that lives in kind of like a confined but cozy home is different than the group that like hops into tubes and wakes up at their next location. That like based on what you're trying to do that can provide you with compelling details about how all of this works. Uh, meanwhile, like the, how does technology change society exercise of time to face the strange? It is giving you cultural world details that revolve around big conflicts and give players opportunities to see themselves as part of those conflicts and part of those movements and use that as the access uh, by which they, you know, turn the world with their story. Um, so it, it, I, I, it's scattershot. I am providing you with uh, details that are very big, details that are very small, details that are very well fleshed out, details that might be this is just a single location that is is very visibly detailed or, or whatnot, um, because I think different people are going to get hooked by different levels of information. And there are some people who would love a 300 page tome that explains world details like down to every last rock and screw in a tavern or whatever. But there are certainly people like me. It's like, that's too much information. Tell me like one cool thing. And I will make an idea based on that one cool thing uh, with Skyjacks in particular, because Skyjacks is a role playing setting that I have developed uh, to, you know, hopefully eventually one day be a role playing game. And in my story, 
uh, like the story is in a way kind of like an advertisement uh, to to help people like realize why this would be a fun world to play in and whatnot. The world building details that I'm trying to do, it's not just like a lot of them are I'm building these details to make the character stories more interesting. But world building details that aren't directly tied to my main cast are there to help people see themselves in the fiction. Uh, one of the best examples of this, I think, is Heartroot Tea. Uh, if you are not a listener to Campaign Skyjacks, Heartroot Tea is a uh, herbal remedy that exists in the world that helps people physically transition their bodies as part of a gender transition. Um, and it's kind of it's like a neat thing because like Heartroot, like the the uh, herb that is the basis for this tea, grows everywhere and it's really easy to grow. So it's so much more accessible than like transition medications in our own world uh, and also it has like this thing of you can mix heart root tea with different ingredients to fine tune exactly you know how you want yourself to be at the end of this transition process and all of that is to say to you know my trans listeners uh hey you are a part of this world and your experience as a trans person is a part of this world. It's easier and more fun uh, to be trans in this world than it is to be trans in our world. Um, but like, it, you know, it, it's not the we, we're waving, waving a magic wand and you look however you want because that eliminates the process of transness. This includes transness as a concept in that like it is a, a moving and evolving thing. Some people, you know, like with their heart root tea would change the recipe at some point. Maybe they don't have a finished destination. Maybe they are constantly, you know, shifting themselves at their whims uh, because like that is what it feels like to some people. And that is a world building element means that a listener who has that as like a fundamental and important part of their life and experience can go, oh, I can make a thousand characters that are like me in different ways in this world that is a cool world building element and it's only a very small one like it's literally hey this kind of tea exists uh that is you know so so tiny but it can lead people to create their own big ideas um and again like that that means that there is no good way for me to say well you stop exactly after you create the tea because there are some people who are going to be like well what does mixing heart root tea with cinnamon do like what does cinnamon feel like to me is cinnamon growing like body hair in, in certain areas like you know and that can be a whole fun experience for people uh and that could be a fun compelling detail and there might be a portion of the audience that wants to hear about things like that um so you know th there's there's no wrong way to go with that rabbit hole but if i were to devote 10 episodes of skyjacks to really fleshing out exactly all of the specific like functions of heart root tea and whatnot i think eventually we'd have diminishing returns um on on what people were getting out of that experience even if i was having a lot of fun imagining it so um you, like at the end of the day like you want people to be able to put themselves in the story uh meaning you want to be able to pull people's ideas into your ideas so that they can build off of them and build with them yeah, and I feel like the sign of a of a really good GM is to be able to pick up on things that the people you're playing with are 
particularly interested in are things that they latch onto and be able to not have an endpoint in mind for those things and actually let that be. And, and you know, we don't even need to uh, ascribe that as a, a, a inborn talent that you have as a GM. Mm. You can just ask people. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. That's one of the things in the gameplay guide. Uh, like I, I talk about session zeros and hey, ask people what they want out of the game. What is in, interesting and compelling to them about playing in this world, what they want to see for their character. And you can do that again at multiple times while you are playing, you don't have to be somebody who picks up on what people are interested in and intuits it. Like at the start of every arc of Skyjacks, uh, we have a mini session zero where I go, hey, what is a cool thing that is in this place that we are visiting? Because if I take those ideas, I know for a guarantee that those are ideas that my cast and players think is cool. So they are going to invest in them when they see them presented in front of them. They came up with the idea for, for Boganalia and uh, uh, Bogwine. But when I showed them the festival and showed them people like exchanging and drinking that wine, they were thrilled because I was just showing them their own idea. So like to be a really good GM, all, all you really need to do is put yourself in the position of asking or be some sort of superhero who f- figures out exactly what people want. Probably the, the first the one. The second one's easier, but yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work for everybody. Certainly this not is, me. Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of tips or advice for folks who are new to tabletop role-playing games, or at least new to playing tabletop role-playing games, who may feel intimidated by the sheer volume of games and content available to them, or by the prospect of like acting and role-playing and improvising? Yeah, those are um, those are two different things. So let's uh, let's divide them up. Uh, the, the first one, I, I think, yeah, there are a lot of games out there. Uh, I would advise you uh, similarly with starting with world building is find interest. You know, you want to do something that you care about. If you don't care about, you know, swords and sorcery, fantasy adventure, don't play D&T. Uh, if you care about superheroes, play a superhero game. If you care about Westerns, play a Western game. If you care about noir, play a detective game. Like there are enough games to support any genre or, or any interest that you have. And there's no reason that you should invest yourself outside of that, at least to start because enthusiasm is a huge engine for, for these games. Enthusiasm will make the whole process so much more fun. Um, yeah. Uh, so like if, if there is a prospect of role-playing, uh, or role-playing games that you find intimidating, there are probably games or tools that are designed to, minimize the thing that you find most intimidating. If you look at a 300 page rule book like Dungeons and Dragons and go, that seems like a lot of work uh, to learn all of that. I don't know how much of that effort I want to invest. You can always, you know, jump over to a game that is a hundred page rule book or even games that are two pages long um, and, you know, start there. Uh, you can pull the complicated mechanics out of the process. It, it's not a necessary part of it. Role-playing means so much to so many different people. There, there's no way, one way to do it. So if there is something that you find especially intimidating or especially frustrating, I guarantee you there is a game out there 
that doesn't really deal with that. Same thing with like first time game masters. If there is something that you feel really secure in about being a game master, like your world building or like your character role playing, um, you know, you, you can lean on that. And if you are like, I'm not really good at designing scenarios or encounters, there are people who just write those up and you can buy their content and that will make them happy. And then you won't have to worry about that. And you don't need to follow the whole campaign. You can take somebody's fun goblin encounter and you can put it in your own story. You know, you choose what you want and there is supplemental material for pretty much any aspect of this, including like volumes written by people who just like created uh, robust NPCs or, you know, extremely complex and well fleshed out universes and settings uh, that, that you can hop into. All of like pretty much every aspect of this game has some kind of tool to to make the idea of role playing easier. Um, on the other side, if you are intimidated by improvising and talking in character and whatnot, I would advise you to start by playing a micro RPG of some kind, a, a smaller RPG, especially a, a comedy game. You know, something like a Honey Heist. I, I think is good because that will show you how unimportant it is for you to need to be creative uh, to have fun. Like, to you know, it, when you start playing bears trying to steal some honey, like, the ideas might be very small. You might just go, yeah, my bear mauls somebody. You will discover how fun that is and how you don't need to put a bunch of artistic creative pressure on yourself. Um, I, I think that is a good place to start. The other bit of advice, which might sound a bit weird, do a wacky character voice. Um, <laughs> you know, ideally something that doesn't embarrass you to do, but definitely something that you can go big with. Uh, because if you go big with like a choice, like a character voice or something like that, um, that will help you put more energy into your performance. And this gets a little bit theater kid, hippy dippy. Like we talk about energy a lot uh, in terms of performing like backstage and whatnot. But like the more energetic you are with your performance, the more the people around you will, will feed off of that. And the more fun everyone at the table will have. Um, I can almost guarantee it. Uh, so like absolutely just just find ways to invest yourself in the game um and you know at the end of the day if you try that and you don't like it but you still want to play role-playing games you don't need to do any of that either there are plenty of people i i've seen people third person narrate role-playing games where where they go lanylin opens the door and walks in and pulls their sword or Lanyolin explains to the guard that that he is lost and you know needs help getting out of the place as as a bluff. Like that is a fine approach to role playing. You don't need to talk as a character. You don't need to do much improvising. You can create a separation between yourself and your character. But you know it's still playing the game, and if you're having fun, that's the right way to do it. I think that's a wonderful note. Uh, to end on, I'll just say thank you so much, James, for talking with us. I really enjoyed this conversation and really enjoyed the book. So thanks for that. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so glad that, that, that you read it and, and got some joy out of it. Uh, I 
love seeing these things go out there in the world uh, and what people create with them. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad that I got a chance to talk about it here. And I hope folks listening uh, were, were inspired to pick up their own and use it to collaborate with uh, to build out your own wonderful ideas. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out CastBios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. <laughs>